0: I've got my ceiling fan on, so if it sounds bad, you can tell me. I'll turn it off and just pass out and sweat. Compared to the piano?
1: Would you like to join a conversation with the Freelancer Show panelists and their guests? Want to support the show? We have a forum that allows you to join the conversation and support the show at the same time. Sign up at freelancershow.com slash forum. Hey, everybody, and welcome to episode 121 of the Freelancer Show. This week on our panel, we have Curtis McHale. Hello. Eric Davis. Hi. Ruben Lerner. Hi, hey everyone. I'm Charles Maxwood from DevChat.tv. And uh, this week, we're going to be talking about some of the tools that we use to run our businesses. Lately, we've been doing the, the series on getting started with freelancing. So some of the tools that we may recommend, we may also, you know, put a caveat on there where it's, you may not need this right when you get started, but it's going to have some stuff that is definitely handy for people who are running their own business. So uh, just to start us off, what classification of software or tools or whatever should we go into first?
2: All right. Well, one of the big things that every freelancer needs to do is invoicing. So what tools do you guys use for your invoicing?
1: I know that one of the more popular ones is FreshBooks. I've been using Harvest, but it does time tracking and a whole bunch of other stuff. And then all I have to do is click the report to show your uninvoiced time. And then you click the button that says make an invoice, which makes it really easy.
0: Yeah, I've been using Harvest for a few years now. Um And so I'm impressed generally with the features. Uh, they were especially one of the only, if not the only, SaaS time tracking invoicing programs that allowed you to bill in different currencies and maintain those currencies. So there were a few that would say, oh, yes, you can charge in dollars, euros, shekels, whatever, and we'll just translate that at the time that you invoice into whatever currency you want. And I tried to explain, no, 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 I want it to be in dollars, euros, shekels, whatever. Uh, and Harvest, not only did they handle that, but their support people were extremely nice and everything. Uh, so I continue to use them for time tracking and even just sort of keeping track of invoices. But the actual invoices themselves, just because of crazy Israeli government laws, have to be on an approved program. So I actually use this other thing that's very specific to Israeli companies for, for that.
1: What's that called? I'm just curious. It's from this company
0: called Tamal, which is a company I've never actually heard of otherwise. And it's it has the beautiful Hebrew name, account book (laughs) 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 which which is of course if you look it up biblical of course Um, it is (laughs) in in origin no it's like it's funny a lot of israeli companies and companies around the world like to use english because it just sounds cooler so you know their documentation is in hebrew their support is in hebrew everything's in hebrew the whole interface is in hebrew but you know they call their product account book and it has the little symbol a b in the uh in the browser tab and actually, like, I, I've learned a lot from them about doing SaaS. Cause every time they have a, a link there that says, if you have comments or questions, contact us. And I've done that on, I guess, about 10 occasions. And literally every time I get emailed back from what I assume is the head developer, maybe the only developer, thanking me profusely for my comments. And it's implemented usually whatever I've asked for within a day or two. So, oh, wow. um, even as a customer, like, I've been, <laughs> I've been learning, okay, when I do SaaS apps, this is what I want to be like because I'm really impressed by these guys.
1: Very cool. You guys using something other than Harvest, Eric? Or yeah. yeah,
2: I use Free FreeAgent. Yeah, that's what I use. I did a long review a while ago on Harvest and it just didn't do a few things that I wanted specifically saying, cause like say I want to charge $1,200 because it's a flat rate for something, but then I want to track my time to see is that really profitable for me and it did do a good job of reckoning that and I didn't think free agent did either until like two days ago when I figure out well, one day ago yesterday, actually, because I was not working Sunday that I could mark if I just mark all that time as unbillable. My client never sees it and it still does like shows me a profit based on my flat rate projects. Right. Oh, nice. That is nice. And you actually mark by task, so when you're in free agent, so when you mark your task as unbillable all time against that task is unbillable, and then you can even have billable time, say if there's some other, say content entry you're doing is billable on top of that, then you can see that as well, and it'll still look at the overall project profit loss.
3: So I just use, I have Chili Project as my uh, project management system, and I wrote a plugin to do invoicing for it, because... Chili Project does time tracking. I have my stuff set up, like how Curtis is talking about where there's like billable and unbillable tasks, you know, all that's in there. And so the invoice actually just, you know, slurps all of that data that's in there, puts it into uh, a textile, you know, text area. And, you know, I can edit it, do whatever I want. When I'm done, I submit it and I can get a PDF. It was the easiest for me. And because I was able to write it, I could actually open source it and let other people use it. But it was nice because it actually automated a lot of the okay, how many hours do I need the bill for? Oh, no, this is a fixed one or whatever. And it pulls in all the time entries. It pulls in all the kind of the line items of what I worked on in that period. And it worked pretty good.
1: There definitely is something that I like about Redmine or Chili Project and being able to customize the tools as a developer. But I just couldn't get a flow working there for you know managing projects that worked for me. But, you know, I guess I could customize that, too, if I had enough time.
2: I actually just looked at my site, and I have also tried Billings, which is a Mac app. Uh, and I used that probably for the first two years. That was like a single $50 purchase that I used. It didn't tie into, like, online payments for people. So I'd have to send them the invoice via email and then go to PayPal and set up a PayPal invoice for them for online payment. And then I've also used Ronin as well, uh, which was purchased by GoDaddy. And I, at that time, I was already thinking it was a little broken in some ways. And then they got purchased by GoDaddy, and I moved immediately. And then the other thing I've also tried is Thrive Solo. And Thrive Solo was pretty but freaking useless. After like a few hours, I had no idea. And I actually wrote about all of those ones that I have used. But Billings I used for years. Ronin I used for probably a year. And I've been on Free agent for close to a year now.
1: Yep. Yeah. When I first got started, I actually just put together a spreadsheet and exported it to PDF and sent it to my clients. And so I tracked my time using something else. I want to say it was slimtimer.com. Yeah, see. it could have been. I used that for a while. Yeah, it was slimtimer.com. Anyway, I would just, you know, take however many hours it said I worked, multiply it by my rate, and there you go. And so if you're getting started and you don't need this uh, big thing to do your work, do this work for you, then you can just get by on something else. And honestly, Harvest isn't that expensive. I don't know how... Obviously, Chili Project and Redmine are, are free minus your setup time and hosting costs. How does your solution stack up cost-wise, Curtis? Uh, mine looks
2: like it's $20 US per month. Yeah. For me? I don't know. I'm, you know, I've been paying for it for a while, so I haven't really looked. It's worked and it was the cheapest plan I could get away with at the time.
1: So awesome. Yeah. yeah but I that looks like it's like- their
2: only plan now, which it didn't have. It had other plans before, but that's the only one I see now. So mm-hmm. and as multi currency invoicing, but it's only okay. So I invoice in Canadian for Canadian clients and US for US clients, well, US for everyone else basically. And it has trouble. if I send them an invoice and they pay on say Stripe, which accepts both currencies. No problem it uh, actually has trouble reckoning that the invoice is paid. So I have to go mark my invoices as paid still. Um, it will work in PayPal under certain scenarios that happen sometimes and little enough that I don't actually remember. So I do, I'll do. have my assistant go back and mark them paid once she can verify they're in the
1: PayPal or Stripe account. Very nice. So do you track time in that too? Because we've all basically mentioned tracking time. I actually do
2: pomodoro's so i have a little book and i draw tomatoes literally draw to ma- little tomatoes beside everything at the end of the day i'll track all my time in um free agent so i don't actually they have an automated time tracker and then there's an app called slips i think but the yeah, Slips as well is like a mac app that sits in your menu bar does it the problem there is like if i have a new task that i want to add it's hard you can't add a task from slips on your mac so i'll write down the tasks as i go through them and then at the end of the day, if a task doesn't exist, I can create it from the free agent web interface really easily.
1: That makes sense. Eric, are you still billing? I know that Curtis is billing weekly. Are you still billing hourly or are you doing it differently now?
3: It's a mixture of both. It really depends on the project and the client. But if it's a, if it's an hourly one, you know, obviously I'm billing hourly and I track all that. And my client actually, uh, in Chile Project, they get a a different set of permissions so they could actually see the amount of hours they bill. Um, and then my weekly clients, um, they don't get to see that. So they, I'm still tracking my time. I kind of, I always want to track my time. I always, even my internal, like if I do email, um, I track how long that takes just so I know, you know, where my time is going. Uh, but for clients, so if it's a, if it's a weekly thing or if it's actually something that's like not billable work, they won't see that even though I'm actually logging it.
1: That makes sense. And are you just tracking that in chili project? Yeah. I write
3: it down. I mean I don't draw tomatoes like Curtis. I have I have no artistic talent on paper, but I write it down on paper. Oh,
2: I never said I had artistic talent. I said I just draw a circle with some stems on the top and color black.
3: Oh, black tomatoes? So. Okay.
2: <laughs> well, I use a Sharpie, so black yeah. Sharpie. I could, could get a red Sharpie.
3: But yeah, I just I track Pomodoros like that and then I have another app I use that's basically like a Scantron looking form of for like tracking time in like fifteen minute blocks and at the beginning of every day, I actually take my paper stuff and the one I use on that that Scantron app, and you know, basically do a bulk import into Chili Project. So I don't use an actual like, you know, stopwatch like timer. I found those just they just don't work for me.
1: Cool. One other thing that I'm kind of curious about: what do you guys use for accounting software? Numbers. My accountant. <laughs> <laughs> Is that um, in the
0: App yeah. Store? <laughs> No, I mean, my, my accountant really like has a fancy schmancy accounting program uh, that's, again, popular in Israel and approved by the government here called Chash of Shevet. And I just go every month and bring a pile of papers. And when we need to discuss things, they bring up whatever reports are, are there or necessary. But uh, I, I don't actually do any of my own bookkeeping.
1: Interesting. Yeah, I've been using less accounting, but I need to get into a little bit more of a rhythm. I, I usually get a few months behind on my bookkeeping and then go catch up. And so I, which
2: is why I hired an assistant.
1: Yes, so I'm actually looking seriously at either handing it off to Mandy or hiring somebody who is just kind of a dedicated bookkeeper. And then I can just go look at the numbers and say, "Yeah, that looks right." and oh gee, I spent way too much on whatever and figure that out.
2: Yeah, mine, I've been using a numbers spreadsheet for I don't know five or six years now. Well, since I started my business, and I go see my accountant every year, and he looks at it, and we make any tweaks that need to be made, but we haven't made it in the last two years, just so that he can see it right. All he gets at the end of the day is a uh, like one sheet that totals everything. I just make a lot questions. We can adjust things like I adjust things right there with him, and then with iCloud Sync, it actually lets my assistant work on it, who is on uh, Windows. And she can do say ninety nine percent of everything that way. There's a few we have to actually adjust a few of the tables around so that she could view it because it didn't do really good at like scrolling to the side, which it did fine in numbers on my Mac.
1: Interesting. So, Eric, did you mention what software you're using?
3: Uh no, it's I use GNU Cache. It started on Linux, but it's I think it's available for Mac and Windows. It's open source. It's been around for I don't know how many years now. Basic double entry bookkeeping system. I have a background in finance and I Kind of enjoy accounting, so it's not really that much of a hassle, and I do it every week during my my normal review stuff for getting things done. So it's I think at the most I might be behind two weeks on bookkeeping, and you know with freelance stuff you don't really have that many transactions, so it's not that big of a deal for me.
0: Actually, by the way, I used to do Cash for a while, I guess about four or five years ago, maybe even more. And so beyond the fact that I'm sure it has improved a great deal uh, since then. Everything I know about accounting, I feel like I learned in GNU Cache. The documentation was an excellent introduction to how all this stuff works. So I would say if you've ever wanted to know what sort of magic your accountant is doing and what some of these terms are, uh, I would highly recommend reading the GNU Cache documentation just for that, even if you're not going to use the program.
3: Yeah, and you can turn stuff off. Like You can have it full-on accounting general ledger style, or you can have it more like a checkbook style, and uh, it's flexible with that. I've, Like I said, I've used it for years. I used it. I tried other programs and I came back to it and I've never ran into a bug with it. It's one of those programs that's like stable. It's ultra paranoid. It has like backups of your backups and stuff like that. And I haven't had any problems with that. It doesn't look the greatest. It's not all web Ajaxy or anything like that. But as far as, you know, what you need,
2: you can get in, get out, move on. Yeah, for backups, I have my assistant, pull the um, number spreadsheet, just download a copy of it and upload it into Evernote once a month so that we have a second backup. And then I can actually scan all my receipts with a photo off my phone and it goes right into Evernote. So we have backups of all the receipts as well.
1: That's one thing that I've struggled with off and on over time is uh, dealing with receipts. Now, I usually just take a picture of it with my phone and it goes into Dropbox. But getting that to connect into my you know, accounting software, I haven't quite figured out a good workflow for that. Is there is there something you guys use for that?
2: I use Scanner Pro by Readle, and then I use Zapier as well, actually. So my process with my receipt is: I take a picture of it with Scanner Pro, and that automatically uploads to an Evernote notebook of receipts. And then Zapier will pick up any new note and push to do list uh, in Redbooth. And then my actually my account or my account my assistant gets that, so she sees everything come through on that list all the time, and she can keep it updated. And I'll make some I could make little notes in that when I was traveling in the U.S. I was marking things as you know U.S. dollars and where she'd find the transaction to actually do the conversion.
1: Huh. Yeah, I'll have to look at that. Can you? What is Zapier? Is it just a Zapier
2: is automation? So it's like IFT, If this, then that. Okay. But it had other integrations that I needed that Ift did not. So it's essentially the same thing. It well, it is the same thing, just a different company. And I'm still on the free plan because all of my stuff is like I don't have enough. I don't do enough transactions or zaps in a month that I really need it. I have a few, a set up, a bunch from Evernote and some other ones. I
1: have to look at them now. I'll have to check that out. So one other piece of software that I use a lot, I'm not sure if we have any other categories for this. I guess we have project management category. Eric has mentioned Chili Project and Curtis has mentioned Redbooth. I've tried a lot of them, uh, Redbooth, Asana, Pivotal Tracker, and the one that I kind of settled on was Trello. <laughs> so um, the thing I like about Trello is it's just super simple. If I'm using something that's a little more complicated and more to-do listy, it's OmniFocus.
2: I have a blog post coming up about uh, OmniFocus and Trello and where they failed and why I went over to Red Booth. But with OmniFocus, you couldn't share tasks, so that didn't help my assistant at all. Yeah, and then that- with Trello, it's just so free-form that like I couldn't step back and see all the boards I have and what do I have due on them all. Mm-hmm. So I'd get to one day and I'd be like, "There's ten alerts because you have ten things due that day." And if i had known that like a week out, which I can see with um, Redbooth because actually Redbooth syncs out to my calendar, so I can see it schedules them as all day tasks, but I can see like every day what tasks are coming up. And so I've like looked ahead of the next week and I'm like I have fifty two things due that day, and I can just hop in and reschedule them really quick so that it's spread out over the
1: week nicely. I'm I'm really curious to see what your overall workflow is for this because. I think that's been my issue with a lot of these is just getting a system around it. I just am not good about building systems and I'm I'm not very detail focused and, and that that hurts a little bit there, but I don't know. I, I've never been good at building systems and I'm trying to get better, but it's just, it's hard. Maybe you guys have some, uh, some recommendations for that, you know, some tools or some things. I don't know.
2: I've already recommended Zapier and I guess I can pre-recommend my pick for the day, which is Calendly. And that is a calendar function. So I, one of my things I was going to get my assistant to do was to do all of my uh, booking for calls and stuff, but just with the time that she can do it, because she works another job part-time as well. And then how quickly sometimes I need calls booked, it just wasn't working. So I grabbed Calendly and that basically lets me set up you know, my meeting times, I have three meeting times. One is for intro meetings. They're scheduled Tuesday mornings. Um, they're scheduled for half an hour and they're allowed three in a day. And then I schedule like a freelancer meeting and that's only one is allowed scheduled in a day. They are only allowed Tuesday morning. So as soon as that one is booked, there are no freelancer meetings available till the next Tuesday. And then I have one for current clients that's scheduled a few times during the week and they can pick one per day basically as a meeting time to meet with me. And I can literally just send someone the link. It asks for their information as needed, like their phone number or Skype. And then it puts that all in a calendar task for me so that I can see it right away. And it also sends them an email so they can put it on their calendar.
1: Hmm, interesting. Yeah, my calendar like, management is more or less we email back and forth. We pick a time and then I put it in Google Calendar. I have been using BusyCal. I really like BusyCal. And uh, I've also been using, oh, what's this thing called? Fantastical. And it puts a little thing up in your uh, toolbar. This is on the Mac. And then you can type in this appointment at this place at this time. And it'll create it for you. So you can say, you know, freelancer show tomorrow at 2 p.m. And it'll just create it in the calendar. And you can also invite people from there. And then Google Calendar magically figures out all the time zone stuff for you. Yes. Yeah, and they have an I,
2: iOS versions okay. as well, right? Yes. I think they just did the universal iPad app, which I haven't tried, but I use the uh, iPhone app as my full-time calendar as well.
0: So yeah, I I also have Fantastical, and I like the feature there where you can add things in plain text. And I have it as well as just my regular calendar program on the Mac uh, syncing up to Google, mostly so that I can then sync it to my Android phone. But truth be told, most of the time when I add events, I prefer to do it with a regular Apple calendar program. And that's because, I mean, Chuck, you mentioned something about the time zones. For a few years now, and it took them a while to get this, you can add uh, appointments and add a time zone with the appointment. So because I'm dealing with people all over, it's often easier for me just to have them tell me what time it'll be for them. So, you know, 2 p.m. in Chicago or 3 p.m. in Sydney, Australia. And then I just put that in my calendar, and I can set the time zone for that, and then it shows up for me in whatever time zone I'm in. And then when I travel, which lately has been a ridiculous amount, I can change the time zone There's something in the upper right-hand corner where you can change your time zone, and then it just adjusts how everything looks. So the, the fact that they have really good time zone management now has really uh improved my life a lot.
2: Yeah, and Calendly does that too. When the first person hits the link first, it actually lets them select their time zone. So then they can... See, they'll see all the appointments in their time zone, and I still see it all in mine.
1: Yeah, I'll have to check that out for sure.
2: But the big thing about Calendly is it's not terribly ugly, like all the other solutions I looked around at. I looked at it; I was like, I would never want to show my client that I did anything that looked like that because it was just ugly. So Calendly
1: looks pretty, very nice. I'm I'm trying to think of other types of software you use or that you may use. I mean. For communications, the ones that I've been using lately are basically Dropbox for files and FlowDoc or Skype, depending on who I'm talking to. FlowDoc is the app that the team that I'm working with right now as my client um, is using. And so it's pretty nice. And you can actually uh, talk in different channels, but you can also uh, talk in different, I think they call them Flows. But basically, it's it's a conversation. So if there are three conversations in the same channel at the same time, uh, they're all color coded, and you can click on the color, and it just shows you the stuff on the other side.
2: Yeah, I've been using Slack a bit for some communication, uh, which is similar to HipChat, and it's okay. I'm not sure that I'm going to use it for client stuff all the time, but I use it for. I'm actually using it for the students I'm teaching right now, um, so they can ask questions in Slack get a response reasonably quick and everyone can see the question and response so that everyone gets the same amount of information during the week when I'm not in Vancouver or when they're not in class. Outside of that, like I use Skype for pretty much all my client calls. Yeah, unless they happen to call me on my phone number. But I use Skype and I don't IM with my clients. I just always have myself marked as invisible. so Because I get too many IMs otherwise and, and I can't work.
1: Yeah, I am's hard with clients anyway, because a lot of times you it scrolls off of the view and then you don't have that captured anywhere. Where with you know some of these others you can actually capture it one way or another.
0: Well, that depends on what I mean what program you're using. So I mean unfortunately each of the different sets of people I work with like to use different apps. So I use Skype for most of my work and with communicating with my employee. So he and I are Skyping to each other, I aming with each other on Skype all day long. And I, some people prefer to use like other sorts of like Jabber and so forth. So for that, I use Adium on the Mac and that you can configure it. Maybe it's already automatically configured out of the box. I've had configure for so long, but it keeps all of my history. So I never have to worry about things scrolling away. And Skype also does that, stores the whole history, but Google plus, I have a, uh, a client who really likes to use that for IM and I have no idea how much history is really kept there. But my impression is not a lot.
3: Well, it's Google, so it's all kept, but you actually get access to it.
1: <laughs> right, right, exactly.
0: I, I can I can file the equivalent of a Freedom of Information request, and uh, six months later get a printout delivered to my door. Hey, there you go.
1: Uh, what about backups? Do you guys back up your computers? No. <laughs> oh
2: yes. <laughs> Pretty much all of my client work lives in Dropbox, um, so that's backed up like on save, right? I, then I obviously use version control as well for everything, so that's gets pushed off to the remote repositories, and I use um. Bitbucket for most of my client work because it allows unlimited free repositories, uh, private repositories, unlike GitHub. So I can have all my client stuff backed up there. And then I use Backblaze for an all the time backup of my computer. And I also use Time Machine to back up to an external hard drive in my house. And then I use SuperDuper to do a clone of my drive every other day. So that's my whole backup scheme. Wow. Yours isn't that good. My like I've had to do it once, right? <laughs> I had to grab my, my clone drive on like the day after I cloned it, I was like, uh oh, everything just died and I just plugged it into the other computer here and held the option key and then I booted up off that drive and I was running again, right? And then I can literally copy it over to a new computer
0: and be done. Very nice. Yeah, my my backup scheme is not quite as sophisticated as that, although I think that goes for most of humanity. But I mean I definitely I have so I've Three backup drives on my desk, uh, one of which gets a, I use carbon copy cloner, which I guess is like super duper, where every night it's copying onto two different disks. So I have two parallel copies of my entire hard disk that I can then plug in and I can attest last year when my hard drive died in my Mac, exactly the same as Curtis described. It was amazing. I just basically kept going. And then the third drive is used, uh, what's it called for time machine backups, for incremental backups. And then separately, um, I actually, I will probably switch over either to use Bic Bucket at some point, because I do actually like them, or install GitLab on my server. But for now, I'm just using plain old uh, Git repositories on my server for most of my work. And so everything I push to my server, like I have a server that I, that I ran, a dedicated server, and all the things under my Git repository, as well as a few other things like mailboxes and websites, are copied into a directory on the server that's linked to Dropbox. And so then it sort of comes back to me on my home computer and if I want to have it anywhere else. And actually having Dropbox on think- a server and copying places, I found to be really useful with clients too. Like you do a database dump and copy into Dropbox, and then they can get a copy of their own database as often as they want. I think the big thing with just
2: having hard drives, which I guess you don't have because you said you do have stuff going off to a server, but if someone comes into your house and takes your computer, they're taking all the hard drives that are sitting right beside it too, or into your office, so you just lost all your backups anyways so who cares that, if you had them
0: that has occurred to me so i've decided that first of all if someone breaks in they're probably gonna take my computer not my hard drives that like and if and usually I'm, i mean i'm not here a lot of the time, so probably i'd have my computer and secondly i'm going to be really naive here and say well our house is actually pretty hard to find like we're in the bottom stairs of an apartment building and it's really hard to sort of get in and out and we have an alarm so i'm sort of playing a game of odds here But what you're saying has definitely occurred to me and made me slightly nervous. So thank you for adding to
1: that. It's not just if you get robbed, but if your house burns down, your backups burn down with it.
0: Luckily, houses in Israel are made of concrete. So when a fire engine passes by, the kids are all like, look, wow, a fire engine. Because they've never seen one or rarely seen one. It's
1: your data. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah,
0: exactly. They'll all be like, oh, look, there's a fire engine outside your house. We've never seen that before. And I'll be thinking, oh,
1: yeah, but but I hear what you're saying. I I just think it's a good idea. My backup situation looks like Curtis's except I I'm not using a super duper carbon copy cloner to copy my hard drive. That being said, I am using Backblaze and I have a Time Machine backup running and uh that way I can get the stuff that I need locally. So if something goes away or the hard drive, you know, goes kaput or whatever. I can get it back really quickly, and then I have the remote backup in case yeah something terrible happens and everything in here is gone. So yeah, um, Eric
2: just mentioned don't trust Time Machine, and I don't trust Time Machine. I have my sparse bundles just corrupt and die every year, so I use them. And if they happen to work when I need it, then I use it. It's kind kind of do it as a staged line defense, right? If my computer dies, then I can grab my my uh, bootable drive and like have a new computer instantly. And then it's looking at say you know version control and if that for some reason i lost files or stepping back then i'd start looking at dropbox version history and then i can start looking at time machine and then everything i figure if like backblaze is dead then we probably have more things to worry about because half the continent fell off and no Mm -hmm. one cares about their website at that point
0: (laughs) yep (laughs) i had a hard drive die on me i guess about three years ago and I was feeling pretty good about it. I mean, not good about the hard drive dying, but good about what my state of affairs because I said, well, I've been using Time Machine, so I've got this great incremental backup. And I was able to restore it, but it was so excruciatingly slow to restore uh, that a friend of mine who's a Mac guru said to me, okay, here's what you need to do. And he recommended my current setup, which was use, I mean, as Curtis sort of said, I use the the clone once a night to get a snapshot. And so worst case, I'll lose, I guess, at most 24 hours. But then I can restore files or things as necessary from Time Machine for those particular things. Um, and that'll run much, much faster than restoring from zero. So yeah,
2: The other thing I'm looking at doing that's only sort of backup, but it's, I guess it's more in the re- reinstall thing, is that um, for uh, Homebrew, there's a, s- a system called Cask, which actually lets you define all the apps you need installed. Uh, and literally just run through them with an install. You type a couple commands in Terminal after you install Homebrew, and it literally just drops through everything you want installed and can help you set up your whole computer in a few minutes, really. And then if you're using the App Store for your other things, you can just click install uh, on any apps as well.
1: Yeah, I guess we're talking about Macs mostly. I know Backblaze works over there. Time Machine is a Mac thing. Carbon Copy Cloner and SuperDuper both Mac deals. I have yeah, I think no Norton, idea with Ghost,
2: Norton Ghost is at, uh, I believe is like a similar to carbon copy cloner and that it'll do a bootable backup Yeah,
1: um, i haven't used it in like 10 years so i don't know if it does it periodically like carbon copy cloner or super duper will but yes yeah, it it is a utility that does that kind of stuff i used it when i was a sysadmin to clone servers Chuck, so, Chuck i
0: know that you used to work at a uh, mosey um, <laughs> I know I was I was
1: debating whether or not to bring that up, but yeah, Mosey is considerably more expensive than Backblaze, and Backblaze backed up everything I needed, and it's actually a little bit simpler than Mosey, which was something that I really liked about it. So,
0: do, do you guys have a recommendation? And here it's a little like self interested uh, for for my wife. My wife uses Windows, and there does not seem to be a good time machine type or cloning backup for Windows. Do you guys know of anything? We might even have one or two listeners who use Windows in the audience. I tried one when I was running two computers, and I don't even remember what it was now,
2: and it was barely passable. I'd have, I would have—I might be able to find if I Google around and find the same site, but I don't. It was not great.
1: I know that Mosey was working on an option where it would back up to a local hard drive and to the cloud, but I don't know if they ever got that finished or figured out. I think CrashPlan does that. You
2: can back up to an off-site. As well, as well as having like their online one. And I think actually if you back up offsite to a hard drive or to a local hard drive, it's free.
0: Mm-hmm. We actually, when my wife first got her Windows machine, so we started with Mosey and something happened with her email. And I said, oh, don't worry, it's all backed up. And Mosey's is a very reliable company and everything. And it turns out they backed up everything except her mail files. <laughs> so, and so we had to have this guy come to the house who actually knows about Windows and look through things. He said, oh, because using this version of Outlook and not that version of Outlook, it seemed surprisingly complex for a common problem. Yeah,
2: well, it looks like Windows 8 has its own file history, so similar to Time Machine Backup, which now that I read about it, is I do remember hearing about as well.
0: Well, there you go if you're on that other system. I've heard vicious rumors that it's popular, so someone might be using it. Yeah. And what do you do for Linux, Eric?
3: In a past life I was a system administrator and we had Windows on Linux machines and so the other guy there, I mean he he was paranoid in the case he actually he lived in a house that had was had concrete walls so that he wouldn't get shot at. It wasn't a bad neighborhood or anything, but he had that he had motion detectors, he had a a system that would be physically unplugged from the wall at all times, except for at a certain time at night that would plug in when the backups were running to bring his hard drive up. And then it would also transmit over radio waves uh, across the neighborhood to his mother's house for a offsite backup. So this is kind of where I learned my backup stuff from. (laughs) I have a laptop that uses Linux and then all my servers use it. And so the systems are pretty much identical, which is nice. So it's like, I know my servers are getting backed up. In Linux, I use, a yeah, all my stuff's open source. Um, I use one a tool called Duplicity, which makes a encrypted uh, full and incremental backups. Um, it uses the RSync algorithm. So it's really, really good about like checking which files change. That runs every night. I have full backups that run automatically every, uh, like twice a month. All of that is copied to my local uh, NAS, which is running dual hard drives. So, you know, now I have, it's off on different physical hardware. Um, the NAS then takes all of the encrypted backups, sends it to S3. So it's now in the cloud somewhere, probably on the East coast of the U.S. My big stuff, like client projects, all that, it's in my laptop on an encrypted user directory, like a home directory. So it's, it's encrypted, it's in Git, Git has its own history. All of those are pushed to the client's repository and also one of my other servers where I have the, like a Git server set up so it has copies of my repositories. That's also backed up through duplicity and also to S3. And I'm also looking at adding yet another layer to do another off-site backup to another place that's encrypted and all that. And I, I counted it one time I think my most critical data I have on... Twelve or thirteen different places, um, with four or five of them off-site, like out of state um, type thing. And I even have a an SSD drive in a safe here, so it's off off the electrical system, all that. If someone breaks into my house, they might take the safe, but it's it's pretty heavy. Um, I bring my foot on it a couple times, so like I even have that that security of like if there's like a power surge and everything in my house is wiped out, I have a I have a disk here. Actually, I have a couple disks here that I can use to kind of get back up even if the network's down.
0: I don't know, Eric. Sounds pretty risky to me.
3: <laughs> I mean, so the other side of it is in college, I had a, if people uh, have worked on uh, computers, they know about the IBM Death Star hard drives. I had one of those that failed a couple of days before like a big term paper was due. And so I basically lost all of my research, lost the entire term paper, uh, had to scramble to get a new one and had to borrow a friend's computer while ones, new hard drives, being shipped out and had to do it all from scratch. And so since that time, I've been... Paranoid, And then, when I worked with that other guy um, as a system administrator, I became even ultra paranoid because he was he was telling me about all these other things that could happen. You know, like a power search can go through and just short out every electrical component in your house and that sort of stuff,
2: yeah. And like my clone drive is unplugged. I plug it in when it and duper knows when that drive when it sees it to actually do the the incremental bootable backup, so it just only does the change files right? And then it shuts itself down, and I unplug the drive. Yeah. And this guy, I, he was into robotics. So
3: he, he had that system, but he also had a little, like, a robot arm that would unplug it. And if it's I don't know if it was USB or if it was on the wall, That it sounds so surprising
2: input. to me. <laughs> I found what I used I, to use for Windows. I used to use Genie Timeline. And I have no idea if it's good or not, but it would be something to look at, at least. And that's like a time machine style backup.
0: I did actually lose, I didn't, I never lost a computer to power surges, but I lost, uh, I had a, like printer, fax, combo machine, and I lost it to a power surge due to a lightning storm years ago. But I haven't really had any power problems since then. And this is despite the fact that my city is under, well, has been under massive construction for years. And so it used to be that we had a lot of power outages. But now it's been pretty stable for the last five years or so.
3: Oh, yeah. I guess that's the other thing too. Like I, my backup stuff is, or my, my NAS is running on a, a UPS where it has, you know, the power goes off, it stays running. And same for my, my actual network. So I don't know my runtime on my big one, but it could, my stuff can stay up for, hmm, I think five or six hours at least. So, you know, if there's a problem or any of that stuff, like I have that there and that's supposed to absorb, you know, huge surges and all that. It'll fry the, the UPS, but it would protect the equipment behind
1: it. Yeah, I have a UPS under my desk as well for the same reasons. UPS is uninterrupted power supply. And basically, it's just a big battery strapped to a surge protector. (laughs) Well, it can be more sophisticated than that. I mean,
0: I know when I did UPS years ago, you could, not that I ever did, but you could connect a cable between it and your computer so that if if the UPS basically, sends the power was going out or down, so yes, it would have the battery backup, but it would automatically shut down your computer as well.
3: Yeah, they still have it. My, my big one has that, um, and it came with the software for it. It's mostly for servers, so you can, you know, power off gracefully, or you'll turn, if you have some that can be killed, whereas some are required, you can do that sort of thing. Mine actually has two separate port or two separate rows of, uh, plugs, so if it goes on battery power, my big monitor goes off and my speakers go off but my laptop and, you know, stuff like that, like the essential stuff stays on. So, mm-hmm. like, I could, yeah. I, I could unplug while we're on the call right now and I pr- it, it actually has a display. It tells me how many how many minutes I have of runtime based on the current load.
1: Oh, wow. That's cool. Mine would start beeping if I un- unplugged it, so. I remember working somewhere and they got
2: UPSs. So, when the power went out, they everyone could keep doing stuff and you'd be sitting in this, in the building, I'd just beep, beep, beep. Beep, like 10 of them right it was, we were super stoked <laughs> that they got UPSs for power outages so we could keep working
3: yeah well mine has a button you just hit it and it stops that because I've had it go off in the middle of the night a couple times and my old one the battery failed and it just kept beeping it, it, it was fine but it just never really recognized that it was okay
1: <laughs> yeah they had a whole bunch in the server room when I was uh, working at the university over here and yeah the whole room would just be going all nuts what do you guys do for passwords? I know the big ones are 1Password one and LastPass. 1Password. Yeah, 1Password. I've been using LastPass, but...
3: LastPass for me. Main reason I'm on Linux, 1Password doesn't work on Linux. They have a web kind of thing, but it's like there doesn't have any of the, the features I needed. And LastPass is pretty universal. Works on everything I have.
2: I'm, one I'm of the features sure. I like... in LastPass that I haven't seen in 1Password is how you can share a password with someone so they can use it, but they can never actually see the password. So it's like, say, your assistant, right? Whereas 1Password, I have to actually give them access to a new vault, and then they, they can do anything they want to those passwords in that vault then.
1: yeah, wow, that's pretty snazzy. I know that LastPass share a password versus give a password. If you give a password, it's basically that, where they they have access to it, they can change it, whatever. The sharing isn't completely foolproof. But it's pretty. Handy. Yeah, I heard that. That if a somewhat a determined person could probably just look at it and go, "Oh, if I, if
2: I do it like this, I can still capture that password." Yeah. But the average person is not going to bother, and it, it's better than um, just giving it to them, anyways,
1: right? Yeah, and that's what I do with my assistant. You know, I just share the password, and then she does what she needs to do with it.
3: And I think the more important thing, like I've started doing this, I I used to have a special algorithm that I had memorized of how to make strong unique passwords for each website. So like I wouldn't have the same one on everywhere. And I've gotten away from that now with LastPass because you have the your master password that you memorized. But then I generate like a 31 or 32 random characters password string for stuff. So like just being able to do that and having it where you know if PlayStation ever gets hacked, I don't have to worry about that password being used anywhere else.
2: OnePassword just added a feature, what's it called? And basically it's like in your OnePassword app, you can click a, a link where I like it based on the app and it says these, you have passwords for these sites that I've known to be compromised in the last X number of days. So you can and it keeps it updated. So you can be like, Oh, I have passwords on that site that are probably compromised. Yeah. And you can also sort by strength as well. Or you can say, Hey, which ones have I used more than once? If you have old passwords, it'll tell you which ones have been
1: used more than once. Yeah. It reminds yeah. me of that all the time, I'm, uh, you know, and I'm slowly migrating them over, but
0: I think I had one password installed for about, a year, maybe more before I actually started trying to start using it seriously because I was like, oh, this is such a pain. Every time I want to log in somewhere, I have to go and type in this password. So I decided at some point, okay, this is stupid. I really should bite the bullet for exactly the reasons that you guys have been saying that I do not want to repeat passwords. I want to have at worst one break in or what one password stolen or one identity stolen. And so I just bit the bullet and started to use it. And within, I'm guessing a week or two, it became very natural. And now, every so often, I'll find a, a site that I'm still using one of my simpler passwords on, and I'm just sort of horrified, and I feel much, much, much safer using a password manager.
2: I even yes. use it for, like, I have a photo of my social security number in there, social insurance number, sorry, and I have a photo of, like, my daughter's health card, and, like, the number's all written out, so that if we're out at the, you know, I've taken her to the hospital, and my wife has the card, and I can tell them the number and show them that that's the actual card right on my phone.
3: Yeah. And I have big server IPs in there. I have um, SSH keys in there. Like basically, if, you know, the stereotypical thing, if my house burns down, but I have my phone on me, I still have all my passwords. I have access to stuff. um, I could get to my, I could use my phone to get my Dropbox password to get into Dropbox to get my backup or to log into a server remotely to grab backups. Like I did that for a specific reason and it's worked pretty good for that.
0: Um, On the subject of security, somewhat having to do with backups also, I've been using this Mac program for, I guess, about a year now uh, from a company, I think it's a Belgian company called Orbicule. Basically, you install, it's only for Macs, but you install it on your Mac, and every so often the Mac sort of calls home to their company and says, hi, I'm here, and it gives as much information as possible where it is. And the idea is then if your computer is stolen, then you can go to their website and find out where your computer was last used, assuming that it phoned home. And you can even then um, simulate a crash on your computer so that the person will bring it to the store and the store will say, hmm, and the store family will figure out what's going on. Then they do police reports. Uh, they let you see what's going on through the camera. You can remote control your computer to some degree. So um, I-, I installed it and hopefully I'll never need to use it. But every so often I'll get email from them saying, hey, we haven't heard from your computer lately. Are you sure that it's on and connected and configured? So it gives me a little peace of mind there to think if I ever lose or lose my computer in some way I'll be able to get it back.
2: And yeah, also the, it's Hidden the, app for that which also does say uh, iOS devices Hidden app.
0: I say
3: uh, US citizens also get that for free. It's at nsa.gov. <laughs> 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 you one just
2: have other... to file a freedom of information request to find out where your phone is.
1: Yep. One other uh, one other one that I've seen or that I've used for security purposes is ProXPN. And it's a VPN solution so for the non-technical freelancer that is listening basically what it does is it creates a secure tunnel to somewhere else and then it allows you to uh, essentially connect from wherever that is but anyone on the local network will just see encrypted traffic and so they won't be able to sniff whatever information you're you're putting through obviously you have to trust your VPN provider but it's pretty cool you know they've given me a coupon code if you want to use it it's tmtcs i'll put a link to that in the show notes and then if you're interested you can go check it out yeah Yeah, i'm using screens
2: and screens works inside the house and it has ios but i haven't taken the time to set it up for external access to my because i have a secondary machine that runs as a server in my house
3: I actually use a service, Strong VPN, uh, for VPN. I it's only set up on my iPad and then on my phone, uh, mostly because travel. One time I was at the airport in Portland. They had an open Wi-Fi, but I was on like an like the App Store, which I would assume would go over secure traffic. And somehow someone got my details, and so I had to go through a whole hassle to get that reset. And so now, whenever I travel, unless I'm on the cellular connection, I go over to the VPN. And the nice thing about Strong VPN, you can actually go to their website. Um, and the first thing on their page is what your IP address is and kind of where your geolocation is. So I can check it in my, my VPN server is out down in LA. So if I'm in Vegas, I can log in, go to their website and make sure that it's reporting my IP as LA instead of in Vegas, uh, which is pretty nice. And it's, I'm paying like seven bucks a month for it. It's pretty. It's pretty good for that. I've been tempted to configure my router to send everything through that, but I'm I'm not sure yet. It's it slows stuff down a little bit for me because it's it's a hop through the states. Yeah,
1: ProxPN has several different places you come out, and one of which is actually London. So if you want to browse the web like you're in London, then apparently you can do that. But yeah, I mean, however it works. It's really handy when you travel or you're in a coffee shop or somewhere where the connection isn't necessarily as secure as you would like it to be or you're not sure. So if you don't trust the network you're on, then a solution like this is a great option. So one other handy little tool that I use a lot quite a bit with my contracts is PDF pen. And I, I just have a graphical capture of my signature, and that's the way that I wind up signing a lot of agreements. So if, you know, if I'm using their contract instead of mine, which happens occasionally because some of them aren't too egregious, then, uh, you know, then I just sign it that way.
0: So Chuck, I don't know if you really can also for certain things, but I use it just if I need to do really extensive edits to the PDF. Yes. Um, if I just want to sign something, the preview app in Mac OS X now actually allows you to insert a signature. You write your signature on a white piece of paper and hold it up and it scans it in and then you can paste it into any PDF you want. Oh, nice. I didn't realize that. So tools annotate signature, and you can import signatures and then use them.
1: Yeah, the other thing that PDF pen does, which you pointed out, it does character recognition. So it'll actually, if it can recognize the characters on there, it'll convert it to text, and you can actually edit the PDF inline, which is very handy as well. Yeah, a long time ago, actually, oh. I signed a piece of paper and then scanned it. And I use that
3: for like when I'm sending the contract because it's just an image. And I actually have a little special watermark type thing at the bottom. So if someone takes that signature and puts it on stuff that I didn't sign, I could tell that this came from a digital signature and it wasn't actually something I wrote on. But I actually, whenever I have to sign client stuff or also if I'm editing PDFs for other people, like say they have a, a an early version of a book they're writing, I use uh, an iPad app called Goodreader, which is it's basically like a PDF reading app. And you can put a whole bunch of different files and stuff in there. Um, But you can annotate, and, you know, on the iPad, it's a lot easier to, like, draw and sign stuff. So I found that works really good. It connects to my computer through SSH. You can use, like, any of the 50 bazillion different syncing utilities to get files on into the iPad and out of it. Um, but I found that works really good for that.
0: Yeah, I've actually, I, I've worried on occasion that someone would notice or figure out, because it is kind of obvious that it's a, you know, digitally insert a signature there but no one has said anything whatsoever i think on the contrary they've been happy that if they send me a pdf an email i send them a pdf back an email that's signed as far as they're concerned that that's totally okay
3: yeah i mean it's still valid you know you're agreeing to it and all that and you know if it comes down in court like it you know it might be a problem but most of the time it, it's more of a you just you guys both agree and it's the the concept of the agreement not necessarily the actual signature
1: any other types of uh, software that we haven't talked about that we should? One thing I've been
3: using a lot is a CRM tool. Um, I've been doing a lot of sales stuff recently, and uh, I don't think you need a CRM tool when you get started. I think it's kind of it's overkill, and even mine is a bit overkill for me. It's it's kind of set for teams and stuff like that. Uh, but the one I use is Pipeline Deals, and it I track my my leads in there, which are typically they they call it deals, so it's like it could be a potential project. I track like where they came from, discussions we've had. What I've been using a lot recently is their tasks. So like they call it to dos. Like I can make a to do in a week to actually follow up with a lead, and then you know in a week I'll actually get an email from Pipeline Deals that say, hey, you need to follow up on this. Um, And that's actually helped me really, really systemize my sales process and actually keep following up with people. And that's actually had some pretty good results.
1: I think I've been pretty forthcoming about the fact that I use Office Autopilot for mine. It has a lot of features that I don't use, but the nice thing is is that I can actually uh, forward emails to it and it'll keep track of all the communication that I have with those folks. Uh, the other things that I use it for besides that is that I can automate follow-ups. So when somebody is on the show, for example, it sends them an initial email and it says, hey, thanks for coming on the show. Here's your link to the forum uh, or here's your invitation to the forum, blah, blah, blah. And then it reminds me every week after that to, you know, follow up with them for specific things. So, you know, I ask them if they know anyone who would like to sponsor the show and I ask them for referrals and I ask them for if there are people that they think we should get onto the show and what they should talk about and stuff like that. And so we've wound up lining up a whole lot of that stuff. And, uh, you know, it does all kinds of stuff like that. It also manages email marketing and it also manages the payment systems for all of the forums. So does a lot of stuff, but I like it. It's not pretty, but I like it. Curtis, do you use a CRM? No, I
2: run it currently through um, just Tasks and Redbooth. I don't, okay. I don't have any fancy system. I would like one, but I have tried. I've looked at a bunch, and they've either been what I thought was too expensive for myself at this point, or they just didn't have the features I wanted. Yeah, I don't even remember all the ones I tried, and I didn't blog about those, so I have no idea.
1: What about you, Reuven?
0: No. Every so often I think about using using a CRM of some sort. But for now, truth be told, I just uh, try to keep track of it in either an Emacs buffer that I have for that purpose or um, sort of force myself to respond by keeping my inbox and by trying to keep my inbox clean, which usually works to some degree. What I'm missing, the big thing that I'm missing is what you said, which is like, you know, I have someone that I want to remind them you know, I, I was in touch with them. I should follow up with them. I mean, just today, I saw I got a phone call from someone. I couldn't get it because I was teaching. And I was like, oh, who is that? Oh, yeah, we talked about maybe doing something. I talked to him a few weeks ago. So if I had called him, then it might have been a little better.
1: Yeah, I tried Salesforce. In it yeah, and that's what confusing. I track
0: in Redbooth.
2: Yeah. See, that's what I track in Redbooth. Even like long-term clients who have had projects in the past I should touch base with every three months. And it's just like, a, yeah. hey, how's it going? Email you enjoying the weather. You know, and I'm you know, usually remembering something we talked about previously to see if there's any projects coming up. Cool.
1: Do you guys use any software to like demo stuff to your client? So you built them some, some software or, you know, had some design done or something. So you uh, pull it up and, you know, maybe draw pictures on it with sketch or you, uh, you know, you. Just... I use napkin. napkin, napkin for pictures,
2: which is just takes a screenshot, lets you annotate it and then I'll record screencast with screen flow. And if I need to screencast something just to show them how it works or to answer a question for them.
1: Yeah, I really like ScreenFlow. Um, one other uh, one that I've used is Meeting to just do, you know, a little demonstration. The nice thing with that is that you get the live feedback. And so, you know, I'll be showing it off to them and they'll be like, yeah, I kind of wanted this to be more like that. And, you know, so then I can just put it into Trello and keep going, which is really handy. But if I can't get them to do it live, then yeah, I use ScreenFlow.
0: I think for that, I've mostly been, I mean, if I do it live, then I've just been using Skype screen sharing. Or if I want to have something a little fancier for screen sharing and be able to hand control over, I use JoinMe. And that that so far has been okay. But I realize that it's not quite sophisticated in terms of the interactions as you'll get on one of these other systems you've mentioned. Yeah, and then I've done demos. I mean, it depends if it's, Images, I use uh, a shutter.
3: It's just a Linux app. It's a lot like Sketch, just to, to write on it, draw arrows, you know, mark it up a little bit and then send them the, the image. If it's video, I'll use ScreenFlow if I'm on the Mac. But most of the time, I just look, I have a script. It's, I just use FFmpeg, which just records what's on my screen and dumps it to a video file. That's nice because it, it's a script for it. So I just hit on the command line and just start talking and doing what I need to do. Another thing I've done a lot is got on a Skype call or I actually found Google Hangouts is a bit better. Uh, Skype has some weird things when you're screen sharing, like it, when it draws, it draws kind of like the progressive JPEGs or whatever, where it'd like be really fuzzy and then it slowly sharpen up. But when you're screen sharing, sometimes you're moving so fast, that it can never get to the sharp. But I found Hangouts was actually a lot faster, a lot clearer. So I'd be on Hangouts and either using the audio there or a phone and kind of demoing with a customer, walking them through stuff. Um sometimes I've even done on a phone call and you know walking them through on like an actual VPS that I rented for the demo to kind of show them like, okay, now if you you know, click here, you do this, whatever, so they could see the actual thing kind of like as a staging server. But it all depends on how what I'm demoing and how detailed the client wants to get. Um screencasts and pictures seem to work the best. It's easy to produce, it's easy to send and they can pause and watch it and whenever they want.
1: Yeah, if you're on the Mac and you don't want to spring for ScreenFlow, I think it's a hundred bucks or something. You can actually use QuickTime and it'll do a movie capture of your screen on your webcam and uh, use whatever microphone you have things set up for. And that just comes on the Mac, so it's just another option if you're if you're not looking to buy the video stuff. Yeah, in absolute worst
3: case, if you have a, a smartphone or whatever, you could just record your screen while you're talking to it. I mean, depending on what you're doing, that might be fine enough. Um, you could even just record audio into your phone and just send an audio file like. It, yeah, depends what you're doing.
1: All right, any other critical apps or types of apps that we need to talk about before we wrap up? Probably the only other significant one that saved me a lot of time was BidSketch, which is
2: putting out proposals and bids, and that saves me probably cut my time in half or more for creating proposals. Let's check it out. No, I won't hold
0: that against you today. <laughs> well, curious, I'm curious. Like I I've looked at Bitsketch and I'm still I- I'm trying to understand what makes it so much better than just writing up a-, a bid to my clients, like you know, plain text and sending them email. Uh you can get them to accept your contract
2: online. I include my contract right in there and so they have to sign, digitally sign it, and it comes back. Um it integrates with some um PM systems, not or our invoicing systems, not the one that I have, free agent, but it doesn't integrate with Harvest. I can see the logo right there. And then even just the templating, right? Because a lot of estimates is the same thing. And you can save, save templates. Like if I'm always if I'm regularly building themes, I can easily just save a template for what a theme normally has done and what the cost is. Cool. So really and I mean if you want to do all the templates yourself and compass snippets for everything, you could probably save all, all the same amount of time, but they already come with pre filled ones for you as well. And then they do all like the like there's guess, short tags in there. So with curly braces, client underscore name is just translate them to the client name or project name, and there's a bunch of other ones for pricing. So you can do that like right into my contract. It'll just translate all the names out for me right into the contract properly so I don't have to dig through and do all that stuff manually.
1: Cool. All right. Well, I don't think I have anything else, so unless you guys want to put something else out there, let's go ahead and get to the picks. Reuben, do you want to start us off with picks?
0: Sure thing. So I've got Two picks for this week, two books that I've been reading. First one is by Michael Lewis. It's his latest book called Flash Boys about the world of high-speed trading. And first of all, I'm just a big Michael Lewis fan. I guess this puts me in a very large group. But I think he writes really well, writes these really interesting stories, makes some compelling drama. Uh, and this is all about would seem to be a pretty boring topic, which is, oh, well, how can people trade on the stock market much faster than other people? But it becomes pretty interesting to see the different characters involved and how the speed of light is actually still kind of relevant and people who want to take it. I think the most interesting thing I've seen in the book is that they found that every time that there were more regulations put in about securities trading, uh, someone figured out how to do something to get through those rules and that led to the next scandal and that led to more rules. Um, And so this is all about how people took advantage of the rules uh, made from the latest and uh, did it basically to their own personal advantage and to the detriment of virtually every other trader in the world. And the other, uh, my other pick is a book by Tom Standage, which he calls An Edible History of Humanity, which is a very cute book about, well, the history of humanity through the eyes of, or I guess the mouth of food. And Tom Standage, I've mentioned him before, great writer, fun, interesting, funny, so uh, definitely fun to read. Anyway, that's it for this week.
1: Awesome. Curtis, what are your picks? I was gonna pick Calendly anyways. We talked
2: about it a bunch, and it's a calendar automating your meeting system. So saves me all those emails. I just send the client the link, and it'll book certain book the appointments, show them the times that are available, and they can pick the next time that's available.
1: All right, Eric, what are your picks?
3: Kind of in a similar vein, I've been doing a using a calendar app for a couple of weeks now. Um, it's pretty good. It's, I'm using the free version. Uh, it's called You Can Book Me. I tried a bunch of them too, like Curtis, and this one found had had the features I needed um, integrated with my calendar, all, all the stuff I wanted. There's probably a few things I would change, but from what it looks like, all those are kind of on the the premium plan. So try it out. I think the free plan is good for most freelancers, especially if you're just trying to schedule like client calls and you just want to figure out like, okay, here's times I'm available and not have to do the back and forth. But yeah, it's, it's pretty good. It's been pretty stable for me and I've booked at least half a dozen, maybe a dozen meetings with it already.
1: Cool. I've got a couple of picks. These are mainly just browser plugins. I've been using this one called Tab Wrangler. It's for Chrome. On Firefox, I think it's Tab Corral. But basically, what it does is if you haven't used the tab for a while, it closes the tab and then you can click on the little Tab Corral icon and it'll show you all the ones that it's closed. And then you can just click on it and it'll you know, it'll bring it back, which is really handy. So uh, I've, I've been using this for a while. I really like it. What I would wind up with beforehand is I'd have a couple of different Chrome windows open that had like 30 zillion tabs open in each one, and then it would be eating up all this memory. And so it's actually kept the memory usage down on my machine, which is kind of a side bonus. But the other thing is, is that if there's something that I really need, then I can restore it. I can also put a tab lock on it, and then it just won't close those. But my, like the email, I, I use uh, uh, Google Apps. And so it shuts that tab down and it saves me from all the distractions, you know, uh, that you get from having your email open. So, anyway, I think that's my only pick for today. So uh, we'll wrap up. Thanks for coming, guys. And thanks for a great uh, discussion. I'm going to have to go back and look at some of this stuff. Thanks for listening, folks. We'll catch you all next week. Hosting and bandwidth provided by the Blue Box Group. Check them out at bluebox.net. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C A C H E F L Y dot com to learn more.